Hey, I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We are here to discuss Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Heart book. <laughs> Heart book. Heidi, you know, are you here to represent like the people who are not Hemingway fans? Or are you here to join us in the Tim and the Tim and David Hemingway celebration hour. Low show with Tim David. <laughs> David and Where are you, Heidi? I am She's looking at us like we're crazy. I right? Like I I love Hemingway. I love Hemingway more than both of you love Hemingway. Oh. oh. I don't I don't know, Heidi. Did you see the <laughs> poll that I put on the Facebook page? I did, but I I lost touch with it about five days ago. What's the about which of us would wax the most eloquently about Hemingway in the first episode? <laughs> what were the results? Tim, like, beat us by a mile. And I... Oh, well, I, well, I take that as a challenge then. That See, and you got, like, hardly any votes at all, David. I think you got four, and I was one of them. So <laughs> I, I think you need to rise to the occasion here. Everyone's used to you being very understated and asking questions, and you're even, and... And so I, I think you do need to accept the challenge that I'm definitely going to win. Every, everybody but my <laughs> wife, right? <laughs> well, okay. So we are here to discuss Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, which I think to at least some degree is, to use Tim's phrase, a heart book for all of us. Tim, have you trademarked the phrase heart book yet? I haven't, but um, I'm in negotiations with the U.S. government about that. <laughs> yeah. That was awesome. Um, I'm not exactly sure that that's how it works. What? Trademarking a phrase. So you might be talking to the wrong people. You might be talking to like a 12-year-old on the internet somewhere. So you may want to look into that. You're being conned. It's happening. How much money yeah, have it, you given him? Only, oh gosh, it's like 1500 bucks, but that's the down payment. <laughs> it might be that you're talking it's to totally Je- one of Jesse Brown's kids. <laughs> no, it's legit. Keep going. Yeah, just to see what happens. To see, yeah. where, they're, see where they're taking you. You might have a good, a good play might come out of it. Right. So The Sun Also Rises is, of course, a novel by Ernest Hemingway. It was written in 1926, and um, it's about nothing. Um, and that's why it's great. Uh, that's not actually true, but uh, we should talk about uh, why people have trouble with Ernest Hemingway, why they have trouble with this book. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about Hemingway's style. We're going to talk about the themes in this book. We're going to talk about literature after World War I. We're probably going to talk about Spain. Maybe some wine. Lots about bulls. Um, Have you, hey, real quick. Difficulty expressing your affection for somebody. You know, stuff like that. Is it uh, say, well, never mind. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> I word. Is it the I word? <laughs> yeah. Um, have either of you been to a bullfight? Seen a bullfight on television? Anything like that? No, no, but the idea of you, like, I was, I've just always assumed that you've been to bullfights. Yeah, I have. I have. Which is, uh, uh, in some circles, a conversation, it's always a conversation starter. <laughs> it also can stop it quickly? It can also stop it very quickly. Very, it very can't. quickly. can't. Everybody wants to talk to you about that. About bullfights? <laughs> yes. There's not a single person who's going to avoid that conversation. I would never go to a bullfight because I'm very squeamish. Um, but Scott really wants to go run with the bulls, and I have to. We have to do some paperwork before that. that surprises <laughs> me so little that Tim yeah. that Scott wants to run with the bulls. Yeah, but he would do it. You mean 
uh, we need to update our insurance policy. Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, and like the will, and there's yeah. there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done before that happens. Yeah. So, of course, in this first section, we're here to talk about uh, book one, those first seven chapters. In this section, the characters are not in Spain. No bulls foreshadowing. are stabbed or run from or run with. Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they do very little but um, move Drink. from conversation over various beverages uh, to conversation over various beverages. Each conversation generally has an over-under of three beverages, three different beverages consumed. Not At three least. glasses, three different beverages that, and, get, that get consumed. Um, let's start here, though. Let's make it personal. It's close reads. Let's, let's make it personal. <clears throat> let's start with you, Tim, yeah. because the people have spoken and they believe that you are going to wax most eloquently and I'm not, a, maybe most emotionally is what they really mean about, uh, about Ernest Hemingway. Where was your first introduction to Hemingway? What was your first response to him? And when did you realize that you were uh, entering the beginning of a beautiful relationship with Hemingway? It all happened my junior, maybe senior year at college. And it happened with this book, The Sun Also Rises, and I don't even, I think I read the book and it was not assigned in a literature class. That's my memory. I'm not quite confident about that. But I read this book and at the end of the book, I put it down and I had, oh my goodness, such a strong reaction. Like I felt like crying and I felt like crying. I mean, I was really, really moved by the book. And the thing that really got me is I had no idea why, because as some of my students at Gutenberg would say after reading the book, but nothing happens. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of superficial, I think, I think everyone halfway through this book kind of has the question of where exactly are we going and what exactly are we doing there? It seems to be a book devoid of plot almost, but where are we going and what are we doing? Yeah. Is definitely the question that the book is asking so it's you're not wrong to wonder that that's right and for me what i couldn't figure out was this is like one of the first pieces of great literature that i had ever read that i had had been so moved by Mm. and i could not understand why i was so moved by a book in which not nothing really happened and and so after that i read i think i've read everything that the man has published. There are probably a few short stories I haven't read. Is this your favorite still? It is. Um, I think A Movable Feast is a close rival, but this is the one. And it's one of those books, it's one of those books that sometimes you fall in love with books when you're younger and then you read them, you know, five, 10, 15 years later. And you're like, oh, that was a a moment in my life. And that book struck me because it hit me in a moment of my life. I think that's true of this book. It hit me in a moment of my life, but I also stand by this book as it's actually really, really, really good. And every time I go back to it, that verdict is confirmed. This is, I don't know, my 10th of the book. I was going to ask you, what number are we on now? Tim, Tim likes this book so much. He was ready to sign on to record a day early. Yeah, I signed on yesterday. <laughs> I was like, hey, hey, guys, hey, guys, 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 where are you? Where are you? Where are you raised? <laughs> we were like, um, Tim, it's Monday. Yeah. Oh, so we can't record a mark today? <laughs> Man, we're going to wait? 
Yeah, what you guys don't realize is we don't actually record every day. Um, that's we sad. We, that's sad, though. We should record. We have our every practice day. recordings all the other six days. <laughs> And yet we still produce this, what we produce. Heidi, the same question for you. I mean, where, where did your relationship with Hemingway start? When did you know that you had fallen in love with him and his mm-hmm. work? And yes. uh, how many times have you read, have you read this book? Um, so my first Hemingway was A Farewell to Arms in Honors English, my junior year of high school. And I had exactly the same, exactly the same reaction as Tim, which is, why am I crying about this book? Like why, <laughs> which that one's a little more overtly sad, A Farewell to Arms. There's things that happen in the book that are terribly sad, but it's, and, and that- Yeah, there's a lot of dying in that book. There's a lot of dying in that book and it ends in, a, in the rain, right? Which might be a little on the nose, but that- It's called The Pathetic Fallacy for a Reason. Right. But it wasn't just what happens in the story that made me sad. It's the writing itself. It's like woven into mm-hmm. the, the, the craft of the writing, which the older I get, the more I appreciate that. What's interesting about Hemingway, and I know we're going to talk about this at ad nauseum maybe, um, <laughs> is, is that his craft is just, it's, it's almost perfect. It's like almost every sentence that he writes is perfect. But it's deceptively simple. It feels mm-hmm. when you're reading it, he uses a lot of, you know, the word very and a lot of repetition and that kind of thing. And it kind of feels simple, but it's not. It's it's incredibly well-crafted. And, and it does magic on anybody who's ever experienced any kind of depth of human emotion. And, and it accesses something, I think, in readers, in me, and it sounds like in both of you, that's, uh, that's like this hidden kind of sadness and longing but but we don't know what object to direct it to. And so it just feels like turmoil. And um, and that is his genius. This book might now be my favorite. A Farewell to Arms was my favorite for years and years. Uh, but I think this one is now. Um, and But I did the same thing as Tim. I read everything. And I remember, what's funny, I remember my teacher. I loved my my honors English teacher. And it was then that I decided, my junior year of high school is when I decided I wanted to be an English teacher um, because of reading the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot and learning about poetry for the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, but when, when we read A Farewell to Arms, I remember sitting in that class, almost feeling like I was crawling out of my skin. Like we're not talking about it enough. We're not getting there. Like we're, there's something more in this book than we're talking about in this class. I want to be a teacher. Mm. Um, and I mean, when we were like 16, there's no way you can get to the bottom of a farewell to arms, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, we had like two weeks to read it, but anyway, there's, there's something in Hemingway that, makes me kind of want to crawl out of my skin still to this day after having read him for the last 25 years. Mm. 20 years. (laughs) 25. (laughs) Just admit it. Just say it. It's 27. No. All right. Um, 10 years. (laughs) 10 years. Yeah. Hey, David, what was your first experience with this book? I read it sometime when I was in... um, I think for me... my. I think for me, this book was in college, but I had read other Hemingway things when I was in in, in high school. Um, but I didn't, I didn't read them in school. For me, it was like you know picking it up and and reading it. In fact, I never and I never read this any of Hemingway except maybe one of his short stories in college either as part of a course. 
So for me, it's been like a self-education That's cool. of Hemingway. But uh, I, I've probably read this book. This might be the fourth time. So it's, I'm not, you know, I haven't read it as many times as Tim, although it is well documented that he's lived more years than me. And so he's had you more chances. You still have time. <laughs> you can still catch up with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, the interesting thing for me is that I taught this book to high school seniors um, a number of years ago. And I taught it as part of a course on sort of modernist lit. And the first semester was, the like the two semesters were in conversation with one another. So we read Camus and Sartre and Hemingway and I think even Fitzgerald during that section and um, Faulkner and a bunch of people like that. And then in the second semester, we read Walker Percy and Wendell Berry and uh, Flannery O'Connor and Graham Greene and, you know, the Christian writers who were responding to the, you know, they were looking at the same world that Hemingway and Camus were looking at and Kafka and so forth. And then they were responding to it differently. So we were able to read those two, those two worlds in conversation with one another, those two responses, I guess. And, um, I was, <laughs> this is, this is so, this is kind of dark. It says a lot about me. I loved how much my students hated this book. Um, like I would say that, and, and interestingly, I would say that every girl in the class despised this book mm. and a couple boys loved it. And most of the, um, most of the kids didn't like it. And so one of the things I like about it is that that becomes a challenge as a teacher. <laughs> so that's kind of a fun, fun challenge. And even if they don't come away from it, loving it, you know, after you talk about it, hopefully they understand it better um, and they can make sense of what's going on. I remember um, they didn't like it. Uh, well, for the, some of the things you said, they felt like nothing was happening. They felt like it was, you know, that it was so, it was like deeply nihilistic. It would be, I think, a phrase that I, I named that I'm giving the way they responded to it initially. I don't know if they would call it, they would have been able to call it that. Um, Pure nihilism. And, and of course these were, you know, this is a classical school where the kids were pretty well read. And a lot of the kids, you know, they'd been reading, you know, uh, everything from Homer to Jane Austen and Dickens. And, you know, this was a, there was a style, this stylistically, it was very different. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of um, things you kind of have to, a, a lot of ways you have to adjust yourself to what Hemingway is doing, which of course was what people that read it for the first time in 1926 had to do as well. Because although people writing like Hemingway is now a cliche almost, and you get influences, you know, he influenced everybody from O'Connor to Cormac McCarthy and, you know, hundreds of writers, thousands of writers in between. Um, but at the time, what he was doing was, was pretty different. In fact, there's a, um, I was, I was reading about, uh, his biography and there is a, um, I wanted to share this. There's an organization. It's called like the, um, international imitation Hemingway competition. <laughs> and it was created to acknowledge his distinct style and the comical efforts of amateur authors to imitate him. That's awesome. Entrants are encouraged to submit quote, one really good page of really bad Hemingway. And the winners are flown to Harry's bar in Italy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that just goes to show the degree to which he has been influential. And he's influential even beyond, you know, um, novelists. He influenced a generation of journalists, a generation of magazine writers and feature writers and newspaper writers. And of course, he was himself a, a reporter and a journalist. So, um, Kansas City star. He was in, you know, when he was in World War One. that one of the things he was doing was documenting things. Um, and, and, and that, uh, you know, his, his approach to journalism 
fed into his approach to, to fiction writing. <clears throat> and so I wonder if, excuse me, I wonder if we shouldn't start with talking about what we believe makes him a great writer. Because I think a lot of people, maybe they're going to be like, I don't, get, I don't get what the big deal is. And that might take us into some of the themes and some of the things that he's doing. So I'll go back to you, Tim, and, and we'll start, we'll kind of cycle back around again. For you, what is it that makes Hemingway a writer that not only writes good books, but is a writer that you want to go back to over and 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 over again? I think that was 10. <laughs> for me the the terse style let's call his style terse i think that's overstating it but i think that's kind of like his his public the public persona of his style is that it's terse um i think it's more evocative than terse and what i mean by that yeah i love that word because he doesn't go he does not tell you when for example, Jake goes to a bar. He, we don't see what the bar looks like. We get very little description. We maybe get um, something about the look of the coffee cups that the coffee is served in. You know, it, it was a white, a small white ceramic coffee cup. But what we more often get is something like he sat down at the bar. It was a good bar. He watched the sunset, and and I think what he's doing there is by saying it was a good bar. He's asking the reader to basically like in the reader's own mind, create that bar. And that might sound like a real dangerous kind of tightrope to be walking because we all have different vivid imaginations and we can all conjure different things that we, you know, what we think, of that makes a great bar or a good bar. Um, but I think Hemingway does such a good job with the contextual life of his characters mm. that when he says it was a good bar, and I think you could actually like test this empirically, it was a good bar off the cobblestone streets, uh, streets of Paris. I think most of us are going to come up with a vision of that bar that is actually kind of similar. Mm -hmm. I've actually tested this mm -hmm. with friends of mine. I'll read, I'll say like, it was a good bar in Paris. What did that bar look like? And we all kind of come up with something pretty similar about what that bar looks like. So I, I think that's what I... Yeah, it, it lends a universality to it, to, to the experience of reading it. And it also demands that the reader be deeply invested yeah. There are other things that we will see. In fact, we saw it in part one when Brett shows up for the first time. She shows up with a group of men and Jake, our main character, has a sort of response to those men, but we don't know anything about them. Like, I think it was not until my third read that I realized, oh, I think I know now who these men are and why Jake has such a strong reaction to them. But Hemingway does not spell it out. He invites the reader. He might even mandate the reader step so deeply into the story that they, they have to kind of invest themselves in creating this world because it, it's not going to all be mm -hmm. done for them. You're right. In many ways, it, I was so struck by the, the contrast 
I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but the contrast between reading Hemingway and reading Dostoevsky, which mm-hmm. we're doing over on the Patreon shows, because everywhere he goes, Dostoevsky, with great purpose and great effect, is telling us, you know, everything that does, that that the characters see and everything they're feeling, and that's the that's how that's the entryway into the themes of his story. But Hemingway is almost doing the opposite, um, and so the the contrast of reading that it's, it was almost a little jarring for me. Who, as someone who uh-huh. who even loves what Hemingway's doing, um, to be reading those books in such close proximity is really interesting. My theory that go ahead, go ahead. One more thing to that that comparison because yeah. it's really informative. I think Dostoevsky's characters are constantly narrating them themselves, mm-hmm. and, and they're doing it out loud to a listener, uh, and when those characters are and those characters are narrating themselves oftentimes with great specificity and like mm-hmm. volatile emotional detail hemingway care hemingway's characters are so different they mm-hmm. it's really difficult for them to talk about themselves in fact in part 1 of the sun also rises jake lays, lays down to sleep and i remember when he begins to talk about how he feels it feels it feels it's hard to read almost because he's been so silent throughout the first portion of the book and yeah this is so good and he's he's very sad and it feels like this kind of um this big piece of ice has kind of dislodged from the deep and is now rising to the surface you know yeah you have people in your life who are like maybe you're on a you're in a meeting with them or they're a faculty or it's a friend or whatever. And usually when you're talking about things, they don't talk much, but then when they do, right. everyone's like, Whoa. Yeah. 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 And you're like, take, you take note of what they're saying. And I mean, everybody knows people like that. Um, that's how I feel about when Hemingway gives us what's going on inside the character's heads mm-hmm. or when the characters try to emote. Um, and the, I mean, you don't necessarily know whether you can believe what they're saying because they, mm-hmm. the characters don't necessarily know themselves that well. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, you know, but it, but when they try to do it, it's so compelling because it's not happening throughout most of the book. I, I have this theory. Heidi, I want to hear what you hear what you think about this, and then you can take this into your own thinking about what you think about Hemingway's writing. I have this theory that the number one influence on Hemingway's writing uh, was not Mark Twain, was not Sinclair Lewis, and some of these other people that he that he is that he's supposed to have loved. And that he's imitating. I think there is a clear, there's a clear line for me between Twain to Hemingway in American literature. I think that's there. But I think the writer that most influenced Hemingway is Shakespeare. Because when I, when you, when you read a, I was thinking about how, so it's Shakespeare is famous. You guys talk about on the plays, the thing all the time, right? He is famous for not telling you the stage directions, right? Right. And so it, it becomes a canvas on which the the actors and the the reader and the director and you know the audience if you're if you're listening to it can can bring their imagination to it and i think that when you read hemingway you get this dialogue with such little stage direction that it feels like he was that you're almost reading a shakespearean play mm-hmm. and then every now and then you'll get a little bit of dialogue to that is super important or not a little bit of dialogue but a little bit of what I'll call stage direction, some kind of an aside that's really important. And so, um, like we know, Hemingway got good grades in English classes in school. I mean, I don't know. I haven't like read, you know, Hemingway say, love Shakespeare. But I, to me, when I read this, I feel like I'm reading somebody who is steeped in Shakespeare. That's, that's, that's the way I would put it, I think. 
I like that a lot. I think that's interesting. Another thing that it's funny, we keep talking about how nothing happens and there's, that's, that's true. There's not, there's not a lot of forward, specifically forward moral action, right? There's not like these. So, and we'll talk more about that, but a lot of big, this, this goes to your point about Shakespeare, David, a lot of big, important, like life altering events happen in Hemingway that are very understated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't find you mean out, like you know, how they actually happen in people's lives. Yes. Like they're big, big things that don't actually normally happen to regular people. Like very often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of death in a farewell to arms. There's like vivid descriptions of, of war trauma in a farewell to arms. Um, what happens to Jake here with this wound that he has is not normal, right? These are big things, but it happens along this like blank canvas of the modern wasteland and in which people do nothing but travel around and drink together with their friends. Um, and there's no kind of context for these people to put the dramatic events into uh, a unified context within this wasteland of modern life. And I think that that's part of what Hemingway is highlighting here. Um, Like none of these people have families. None of these people go to church. None of these people have um, uh, a, a life that they have cultivated with the depth in which to be able to process and integrate these big traumatic events that have happened to them. Um, Hmm. And, but I want to draw, you asked about his writing and I want to draw attention to just a tiny little moment that struck me as just perfect. This is what I mean. This is what I mean that Hemingway's writing is just almost every sentence is nearly perfect. Um, On page 19 in my book i think david you and i have the same book right is this one you have tim yeah all right the scribner i think it's the same pagination yeah this is yeah on page 19 uh when he's going to drink with robert Cohn downstairs in the bar um and this this tiny little moment that your eyes kind of slide over but it makes an impression anyway and if you're close reading you might notice it um at the top of the page, at the end of the first paragraph, it ends with the sentence, Cone looked at the bottles and bins around the wall. And he says, this is a good place, he said. There's a lot of liquor, I agreed. That's two perfect sentences. There's no, no flaw in either of those things. Like, they're both seven words long. Each of them make say a phrase that's five words and then ends in the same structure. He said, I agreed, right? And so it makes this parallelism in your mind as you're reading it. And there's so much subtext in those two little, like just like, they're not the same thing. Like this is a good place is not the same thing as saying there's a lot of liquor. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I love that Hemingway says that the narrator says, I agreed. I agreed. it It suggests a sort of um, lack of uh, understanding on the part of the narrator, and like that sort of thing forces us as readers to be like, "We're making an interpretation you know whether what you're we know about? it or not." And I think that's what happens with Hemingway. Is his like every sentence is like that, and the reason he agrees. I mean, we have like 
even a little bit of stage direction in the sentence before. Uh, Cone looked at the bottles and bins around the wall. So Jake is noticing that he's looking at the bottles and saying, this is a good place. So he could simply be responding by noticing that Robert is looking at bottles. And so he's he's interpreting that as this is a good place because there's a lot of liquor. But there's so much more to that, right? Because to these people, the only good place is a place with a lot of liquor. They need that. It's part of the culture of their lives. It's part of the context of how they build relations, these empty kind of relationships that that are so fraught with meaning and yet so meaningless at the same time. And there's there's so and and just the parallelism, the writing of that, uh, the the amount of words and it's perfect. There's so much going on in those two little sentences. And that's just two little sentences. And everything's like that. This whole scene, I think, is super crucial. We should probably yes. read it at some length. Go ahead, Tim. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think going back to my first experience reading this book, when I walked away from the book not understanding how it could have such an impact on me, I think what you're saying, Heidi, is a perfect example of how it did have an impact. Yes. On me. Because I don't think I was sophisticated enough as a reader to really like see what you just saw. But I think on a, some sort of a subconscious level, I, I, I did see it. Well, the book was working on you. Yeah, yes. And I think the effect of the book is sort of like um, when, when you meet someone for the first time and you walk away, you walk away with a feeling about that person. And oftentimes it's not the right feeling, but oftentimes it is the right feeling because you form a sort of intuitive sense of someone based on a hundred things, mm-hmm. a thousand yeah. things other yeah. than the words that they speak. So yeah. Posture. Posture. Like the way they dress. Anxiety. You know, like if they, if there's a lot of anxiety, it manifests itself in a little, I had a conversation with someone, actually I saw a teacher um, in front of his class the other day and he was so anxious and it just kind of filled the room. But like, what could I put? What could I point to from the actual content of what he said that said he was anxious? Nothing really. Yeah, I think that's what kind of what's happening. What happens in this book is like meeting someone for the first time. We're sort of a lot. Our semi-conscious is making a lot of rapid decisions that it's a little bit difficult to account for until you've had a, like a, a, maybe a second reading or a long time to yeah. sit and dwell with a Yeah. Right. This is the kind of book, you know how we talk about the idea of like submitting to books? Yeah. And, and this to me, this is the ultimate example of a book you need to do that with because what it's doing is confounding all the expectations that you come to it as, especially if you're a lover of great literature. So you have this whole tradition that you've built up, that, that, that has built up within you a set of expectations. Just like you might have heard about someone's reputation as a person or you might, you might have a certain set of expectations because of the way they dress or their posture or what, you know, like what you're talking about when you meet a person, but you, if you submit to the book and let its language sort of wash over you and, you know, let it do its thing and try to identify what it is that the thing is doing and like, and and submit to it, not judge it until you've identified what it is that it's actually doing. Hmm. You know, this is difficult. This is a difficult book to do that with though, because, because the very fact that it is bucking conventions, that it's, some in some way stepping outside of the, the tradition that it's different than most things that it came before it and that it's uh difficult at times leads you to leads that leads it to be very difficult 
to to do that sort of submitting. And that's why it's like, it is really, it, it's still disorienting for me to jump from a book like Dostoevsky to a book like this, because Dostoevsky is, is, a, is a, it's part of a tradition of literature that Hemingway is stepping outside of. Um, and the submission takes, it's like, you have to be active like and careful in deciding to let the book be what it is. Even as someone who loves this book and loves Hemingway, I still have to remind myself, you know, this is doing something different than what I have been trained to expect books to do hmm. um, or conditioned maybe is better word than trained. <laughs> um, were you going to say something, Heidi? No. Mm-mm. Okay. I was trying to respond in a way that jives with what Tim was saying. I hope that, yes, I hope it no. came across that way. <laughs> it did. Um, I, I think the scene that you brought up is actually um, one of the most crucial scenes in terms of getting into the heart of the book. Like if I was teaching this book, we spent a long time on this scene. Um, can we can we do a I guess I don't know what what's a better word a close read of this of this scene? I'd love um, to. And there's two characters and a narrator. So um, I'll be the narrator. Hey, Heidi. Okay, <laughs> um, let's start with. Um, I like the the stuff about like uh, random writers like W. H. Hudson. We can skip that part. Um, let's start with on page seventeen where actually Robert comes in. So Robert is talking to Jake and it says, hello, Robert. Did you, did you come in to cheer me up? You guys see that? Okay. Tim, you want to be Jake or you want to be Robert Cohn? I'll be Jake. Okay. I'll be Robert then. Hello, Robert. I said, did you come in to cheer me up? Would you like to go to South America, Jake? No. Why not? I don't know. I never wanted to go. Too expensive. You can see all the South Americans you want in Paris anyway. They're not the real South Americans. They look awfully real to me. I had a boat train to catch with a week's mail stories and only half of them written. Do you know any dirt? I asked. No. None of your exalted connections getting divorces? No. Listen, Jake, if I handled both our expenses, would you go to South America with me? Why me? You can talk Spanish and it would be more fun with two of us. No. I like this town and I go to Spain in the summertime. All my life, I've wanted to go on a trip like that. I'll be too old before I can ever do it. Don't be a fool. You can go anywhere you want. You've got plenty of money. I know, but I can't get started. Cheer up. All countries look just like the moving pictures. But I felt sorry for him. He had it badly. Can't stand to think my life is going so fast that I'm not really living it. Nobody ever lives their life all the way up except bullfighters. I'm not interested in bullfighters. That's an abnormal life. I want to go back in the country in South America. We could have a great trip. Did you ever think about going to British East Africa to shoot? No, I wouldn't like that. I'd go there with you. No, that that doesn't interest me. That's because you've never read a book about it. Go on and read a book all full of love affairs with with a beautiful, shiny black princesses. I want to go to South America. He had a hard, Jewish, stubborn streak. Come on downstairs and have a drink. Aren't you working? No. We went down the stairs to the cafe on the ground floor. I had discovered that this I had discovered that was the best way to get rid of friends. Once you had a drink, all you had to say was, Well, I've got to get back and get off some cables, and it was done. It is very important to discover graceful exits like that in the newspaper business, where it is such <laughs> an important part of the ethics that you should never seem to be working. Anyway, we went downstairs to the bar and had a whiskey and soda. Cone looked at the bottles and bins around the wall. 
This is a good place. There's a lot of liquor. Listen, Jake, don't you ever get the feeling that all your life is going by and you're not taking advantage of it? Do you realize you've lived nearly half the time you have to live already? Yes, every once in a while. Do you know that in about 35 years more, we'll be dead? What the hell, Robert? What the hell? I'm serious. It's one thing I don't worry about. You ought to. I've had plenty to worry about one time or another. I'm through worrying. Well, I want to go to South America. Listen, Robert, going to another country doesn't make any difference. I've tried all that. You can't get away from yourself by moving from one place to another. There's nothing to that. But you've never been to South America. South America, hell. If you went there the way that you feel now, it would be exactly the same. This is a good town. Why don't you start living your life in Paris? I'm sick of Paris and I'm sick of the quarter. Stay away from the quarter. Cruise around by yourself and see what happens to you. Nothing happens to me. I walked alone all one night and nothing happened except a bicycle cop stopped me and asked me to ask to see my papers. Wasn't the town nice at night? I don't care for Paris. So there you were. I was sorry for him, but it was not a thing you could do anything about because right away you ran up against the two stubbornnesses. South America could, fi- South America could fix it and he did not like Paris. He got the first idea out of a book and I suppose the second came out of a book too. Well... I've got to go upstairs and get off some cables. You really have to go? Yes, I've got to get these cables off. You mind if I come up and sit around the office? No, come on up. He sat in the outer room and read the papers, and the editor and publisher and I worked hard for two hours. Then I sorted out the carbons, stamped on a byline, put the stuff in a couple of big manila envelopes, and rang for a boy to take them to the garden. I don't know how to say that. St. Lazar. I went out into the other room and there was Robert Cohn asleep in the big chair. He was asleep with his head on his arms. I did not like to wake him up, but I wanted to lock the office and shove off. I put my hand on his shoulder. He shook his head. Can't do it. And put his head deeper into his arms. (laughs) (laughs) Can't do it. Nothing will make me do it. Robert. Do we want to? There is that by the shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) He looked up. He smiled and blinked. Did did I just talk out loud then? Something, but it wasn't clear. God, what a rotten dream. Did the typewriter put you to sleep? Guess so. I didn't sleep all last night. What was the matter? Talking. I could picture it. I have a rotten habit of picturing the bedroom scenes of my friends. We went out to the Café Napolitan to have an aperitif and watch the evening crowd on the boulevard. So you guys can jump in here wherever you want. But one of the things I want to say is that the reason I wanted to bring this passage up is because it foreshadows things like the bullfighting. It, it, all, so many of the themes coalesce around this conversation here. Um, mm-hmm. And... And then it takes us back to the opening paragraphs where it talks about Robert Cohen being this boxer. And there's this like this concept, like the opening scene is about this guy who takes all this action and is this big, strong guy and all that kind of stuff. But then here we see him completely, you know, undone. And so I think that all the themes coalesce around it. But also when it comes to the writing, Hemingway is able to take all these themes and like say them in a way that almost seems on the nose, but they're a part of the dialogue in a way that's so nat, there's so much naturalism to it. And the thing that he never allows you to do, he, he never really allows you to 
to be comfortable because he never really gives you a conclusion to a conversation. Mm. I was thinking about this so uh, so many times over and over again. There's one towards the end of the uh, towards the end of this uh, at the end of part one, and I wrote in the in the margin. It's on page sixty eight. He so rarely gives you a resolution to a conversation. And part of that is because the characters never totally seem to know if like they're never not necessarily ever telling the truth. They don't know themselves. But and I was thinking about how in human actual human conversation, conversations rarely conclude, right? They just right. sort of end. The night Tear sort of out. ends. Yeah. You never really have a catharsis in real conversations the way that fiction mm-hmm. up usually presents them. Um, I actually think this is an interesting thing that Shakespeare does. Like scenes end more than they do offer you catharsis at the end of them. Now, there are moments where you get a lot of catharsis, but how many scenes are just sort of like, wait, that's over? That person just left? Um, And that's what Hemingway does here. And So I think that this, in all these different ways, from the writing style to the themes that are introduced, it all kind of coheres so perfectly in this conversation. Um, and things begin to spill out from this. Um, so that's that's what I wanted to say, but you guys can jump in wherever you want. You can disagree with me if you want or point to something specific or whatever. I mean, I don't mean to just like summarize everything and then, you know, the conversation is just going to totally, end. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, I agree with everything that you're saying. What I like about Hemingway versus, say, uh, for example, where you guys know this, we're watching Yellowstone right now, which is a good show. But there's a lot of like conversations in which people make like dogmatic philosophical statements about the nature of the world. Right. And it represents yeah. something that's going on in the show, right? Like yeah. I am the past. And I like it's things like that. That's like, okay, nobody talks like that. But it means something in the show. But yeah, there's, there's a dramatic language yes, to the Exactly. And a show. show has different rules than normal conversations. And that's 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 how art is. It kind of has a different set of rules. But but Hemingway I, I really like this conversation for exactly the reasons that you're stating, but it doesn't sound like some sort of thesis statement. It's one of those conversations that you come back to and kind of remember, right? You, like, yeah. Oh, everybody. You can see yourself yes. having. Yes, but it, it's specific. He's not saying, he does make a statement like, wherever you go, you can't get away from yourself. That's kind of a general statement, but it's embedded in a specific conversation. So it doesn't sound like he's making some kind of dogmatic statement about the nature of the world. It's some, it doesn't sound like a thesis statement for the novel. It's just normal flowing of conversation that has to do. He's with trying to help his friend. Exactly. He's like, you're reading these and it's funny. Like he's yeah. nobody ever talks about how funny Hemingway is. He's super funny. Oh, I and, do. <laughs> yes. But that's not what you read on, you know, like the Facebook yeah. posts and people are like, Yeah, Hemingway's Catholicism so or dour. whatever. It's not yeah. like yeah. <laughs> hilarious, which he is. Yeah. Um, and this this conversation is dark and funny, and it has this pathos to it, and it has this weight to it, but it's also just a conversation about whether or not they want to go to South America. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, do you, do you want to add to this or can I, or should I ask you a specific question that I've actually been wondering about with you? Uh, the latter. <laughs> Wait, what did I say? What order? <laughs> <laughs> the specific question you wanted to been asked. <laughs> I asked the question and then immediately it was like, crap, shoot. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So people accuse the characters in this book of being mopey. Mm. And I think that like, Robert Cohen is kind of mopey. Does that 
what is the effect of that on you? Because, you know, there's like this, you know, sense in which if they would just, you know, pull their bootstraps up and suck it up, they'd be a lot happier. Uh, you know, that's a take that it's a, my paraphrase of a take you'll hear about a complaint you'll hear about Hemingway. How do you read that and Cohn's mopiness in this, in this uh, section? I, I, I think there's a juxtaposition between the main characters. I think Robert is a main character, Jake, Brett, and a couple others that we'll be introduced to in part two. Yeah. They are, I don't like the, the word mopey. Um, but I, I know what you're saying. They're, they're sad. They're sad. Mm-hmm. The reason that they are sad, I think, has to do with the context into which the book is written. Okay, so let me, let me back up and say, there, we meet one character, at least in part one, who's not terribly mopey, and that's the Count. The Count seems like he's a happy guy. He has, he's enjoying life. He's um, drinking great wine. He's procuring great champagne. He knows all the places to eat. He's, he's an Epicurean, kind of like in the new sense. He just knows how to enjoy his life. But there's a moment between he and Brett in which he's kind of describing his approach to life. And I think Brett's reaction is fascinating. She, yeah. uh, what does she call him? Um, she kind of accuses him of like having no values. What is it? What is the, what's the word that she calls him? Maybe you guys. It's on page 67, I think. Ah, here, well, let read it. She says you're dead. Yeah. Hey, Heidi, let's do this. Um, you're, you're Brett. Uh, let's start with, doesn't anything ever happen to your values? Like five lines, seven lines up. And I'll be the count. 67. Can you start with you see Mr. Barnes a couple lines above that actually? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm do you, are you there, Heidi? I am there. Start reading. I'm the count. You see, Mr. Barnes, it is because I have lived very much that I now can enjoy everything so well. Don't you find it like that? Oh, that's Jake. Uh, yes, absolutely. I know, said the count. That is <laughs> you must get to know the values. Doesn't anything ever happen to your values? No, not anymore. Never fall in love? Always. I am always in love. What does that do to your values? That too has got a place in my values. You haven't got any values. You're dead, that's all. No, my dear. You're not right. I'm not dead at all. We drank three bottles of champagne and the count left the basket in my kitchen. And then the, narr- then the narrative goes on. But I, I think Jake's, excuse me, Brett's response to the count is so fascinating because she's living the same life that the count is living. Mm-hmm. She's just, she, it's a party with Brett. It's a nonstop party with Brett. She's going through a divorce. She's going to get remarried, but she's just kind of going from bar to bar. She's dancing. She's having a great time. She stays out all night with the count. But Brett deep down is very, very sad. Jake deep down is very, very sad. Robert Cohn deep down is very, very sad. And I think that the context of the book is vitally important here. This is, as David mentioned at the top of the show, 1926. This is in the shadow of World War I. And it's hard to express like what happened 
culturally in World War I. Um, actually, I have a quote. I used to have this quote memorized because when I first read it, it had so, it just made the world make sense to me. It's from Andy Dillard. I'm just going to read the quote. If meaning is contextual, and it is, then the collapse of ordered Western society and its inherited values following World War I cannot be overstressed. Mm. When we lost our context, we lost our meaning. We became, all of us in the West, more impoverished and in one sense more ignorant than pygmies who know one great thing, in this case, why they are here. I think that this book is about characters who in some way, maybe in just like in kind of a semi-conscious way, are among the first to realize what has happened in World War I. I think it's part of the reason for the inscription from, or excuse me, the... The, 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 the Gertrude Stein. The Gertrude Stein, you're all a lost generation. Lost generation. Yeah, which she said to Hemingway right. in a conversation. And so I think Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Ford Medix Ford and TSL Ezra Pound and yeah. on this group Picasso congeals in Paris they're kind of the first ones to see well everything has changed now and, and something to look forward to in the book is uh Jake's approach to Catholicism in the Catholic Church how different that his kind of like mm-hmm. approach to Catholicism is as compared to, let's say, mm, 75 years earlier, Victor Hugo's approach to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that that contrast is going to be really yeah. important going forward. But I, I think to conclude, these the characters that are mopey are actually really sad. And I think that they're sad because they don't know what, like, okay, so what's life about now? Yeah. What exactly well, are you doing? It, the page that you just read is the page that I wrote that he so rarely gives us a resolution to a conversation. And I think it's really important that he ends the conversation with the count saying, I'm not dead at all. Mm. And she says, you're just dead. And he says, I'm not dead. And, I, and, it, and what we don't get is a resolution to the question of whether he's dead. Yeah. And so that speaks to what you're saying there because they've lived through, I mean, it's really important that we get this contrast uh, where the where the count lifts up his shirt and shows these arrow wounds, right? Yeah. Because what we know about about Jake Barnes is he is like he is wounded to the point that he can't bring life into the world. Uh-huh. Um he he's so wounded he can't he could never participate in a relationship that would allow life to come into the world. Yeah. So this concept of life and death, I think is constantly under the surface, but and 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 what it means to be alive, and what it means like what it means to actually be alive, and is there a death other than your heart stops beating? Mm. Right. And so we get we get this character who says, "Oh, I'm not dead at all." And he, as you said, he's an Epicurean, and he's like burying his wounds. Right? Mm-hmm. He's saying these wounds are are a symbol of how alive I am. Essentially, like he's not saying that I'm 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 mm-hmm. making him say that. I'm paraphrasing that. But then you've got this contrast to Jake whose wounds are the ultimate private wound. Yeah. They're the, he, he could never bear his wound. Like he could never just reveal it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, Brett knows about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the thing holding them back from being able to have, a, you know, to consummate a relationship. Um, and, and so then 
Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and it wounds her too. Right. Yeah. And so we get this, like, at the end of this conversation, we have no resolution yep. about who's dead and who's actually alive. Yeah. Is, is Brett right when she says, you're dead? Is he wrong when he says, I'm not dead? Or is he right? And that, like, that theme then lingers on to your point, Tim. And they've lived through, you know, you know, what does it mean that they were lost? You know, that this kind of conversation seems to be reflecting on the question of what does it mean? When Gertrude Stein told him, you're all a lost generation, what did that mean? <laughs> like, it's one thing to, like, it's in many ways, it feels like this book and scenes like this are characters working out what it means to realize that we are part of a lost generation. Mm. Um, we're, we don't, what does that mean for our future? Does it mean that we have no future? Does it mean that we're, are we really lost? Can we be found? And conversations like this seem to be um, reflecting on that. Heidi, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> even talking about Hemingway makes me want to crawl into my skin. Um, so. Out of or into? What did you say? I said out of. Okay. <laughs> um, so. I I think I said at the beginning of the podcast that this one has become my favorite over the years. And I, I think it's because of exactly what we're talking about right now uh, with something like a farewell to arms or even for whom the bell tolls. Uh, there's so many sad things that happen in those books that you can point to them as the reason for the sadness. Um, like if you're reading a farewell to arms, you can say there's these things that happened and that's why we're all so sad. But this book, they just party the whole time. And yet there's just such grief and despair and all of this subtext of, of, that address all of these questions that, you're, um, that, that you both have, have pointed out. Um, and I think that's why it's so genius. And, and so for, for readers who are like, what's going on? That's what's going on is we are tracing these threads of loss and meaninglessness and grief and despair. And these are the first generation of people like these are, Jake was a soldier. He was wounded in, in the war. So there's this, and, and the wound is, is the wound of impotence, which to your point, it's this ultimate private wound. I love that phrase. Um, and it is, it's a wound that cuts him off at the source. He get, there's the doc, there's a doctor who makes a comment to him that you're not, you didn't merely give up your own life, but you gave up all the generations that could have come from you. Right. This idea of the impotence, Jake's impotence. I think that's why the lost, that's why he's, that's yes. an expression of the lost generation. Yes. That it's he's an trying objective to, correlative. Yeah. It's a, we talk about that phrase. It's a symbol. Like there's, it, it's more than a symbol. It is, it's a primal existential wound that is embodied in Jake that with the loss of that context that we're talking about, these people have no family, they have no faith, they have each other and they have alcohol and they have drifting around the world. And if something big happened in this novel, it would almost undermine that whole point, which is what, what there's all of these deep existential questions, these deep wounds that these people have experienced symbolized in Jake's impotence and and what comes from that like what recourse do they have and like where can they you know where can they go home where where can they be that yeah, would they're not that would back on the farm them, in kansas yes some healing and 
whether or not that's not available to them or they don't want it, it it all goes back to that same question then. Like what what does this generation do in order to somehow uh, find healing that goes deep enough to address this wound? And and mm. that is that gap between what they the the life that they live and whether or not it has any kind of potential for healing and the depth of the wound, that gap is where these characters dwell all the time. And people respond one of two ways to Hemingway. I've never met anybody. I don't know if you all have. I've never met a single person who's like, I don't know. I liked him fine. They either love him or they hate him. Yeah. Because there's either a sense of like, I like, and I'm one of those like melancholy people who's like, bring me to that space. Like I'll dwell in that with these characters. And (laughs) I have the same questions about life. And, but, and then there's people who like, I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel that. I'm a happy person or I'm sad person. And it's hard for me to be there with these characters. Mm -hmm. And I think I would just say, like, give it a try. Because that's where compassion dwells. Like if we can be in that space with people, that's where compassion dwells. And that's maybe some potential for meaningful healing, whether or not that's your story or someone you know. That word compassion is really good because the important one of the things that I think Hemingway actually has is a great deal of compassion for his characters. Mm -hmm. And so while the book there's a big difference to me between a book being like um, hopeless Mm -hmm. or hopeful. And then offering a sort of invitation to be have compassion for characters, and the degree to which Hemingway has compassion for characters is why I reject the idea that these are his books are nihilistic. Can I? They're clap not in books. My microphone. <laughs> <laughs> they might not be books that you come that you come out of feeling hopeful, but they are books that invite you to to have compassion uh, for people who need your compassion, um, and that's why I think they should be read. Tim, go ahead. I think you were going to say something. Uh, right as I was opening my mouth. I feel like all Sorry. of us are always waiting to say something on this episode because we're like, <laughs> yes. We're chomping. Tim's turn. <laughs> um, literarily, this book was published. I, I want to back up. Um, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the for a person living in the West, in the United States, in Europe, um, I think there's there's previous to World War One there's this kind of notion that Europe and the United States are uh, on a on a mission and that mission is like the civilizing of the world. Um, and that language now is like for really good reasons a problem. Like why? Why is it you know like a, this particular picture of civilization that the world needs? Like I get like bringing um, science and medicine to places that are suffering from indigenous diseases and have no way out. Absolutely, that seems like the sort of mission that I can get on board with. But there's another part of the mission which is oftentimes I think kind of I gotta be really careful. I'm like I'm. I'm getting dangerously close to a political conversation. Let me back up. I'll say it in a different way. During this time, Europeans and Americans are starting to have a look at that project and they're beginning to see the problems inherent in it. The the most obvious one being, if we're so civilized, how in the world did we just butcher each other in Ardennes? How do we just butcher each other 
using um, the science that we're touting, how do we butcher each other so that we like reduced France and Germany's and England's male population by like a, an incredible amount. And also at this time, the stories are beginning to come out of um, colonized countries in which our work there is anything but heroic and civilizing. It much more resembles a lot of cases like the Belgian Congo rape. It's just Mm -hmm. devastatingly awful. So Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad published 25, 26 years before this is kind of drawing attention to what the kind of civilizing quote, civilizing influence in the Belgian Congo actually looks like. And it, and it looks positively awful. So that combined with world war one, um, someone like Jake or Brett or Robert, who one generation earlier could have been full force behind the American project, the westernizing project, is now got deep doubts. So what what are we going to do now? Like, what's the next step now? There is no cohesive national project that we can embark upon that is holy and good and right We've got significant problems. And that question is continuing. I mean, you can hear the reverb of that question right now, like in every yeah. social media account right now, kind of like takes a side in that question. Has the United States, has uh, Western Europe's effects on the world been destructive or mm-hmm. beneficial? And I think, again, Hemingway and his friends are the first, I'm not saying that they can like saw all, you know, a hundred years down the line, but I think they're the first ones to kind of see, oh gosh, we, we, we've got a big, big problem on our hands here and we don't know what to do about it. And formally, I think that's why so much of Hemingway's writing is you have these declarative sentences that he's known for that are juxtaposed with these really rich, complicated questions that these characters are asking. Yeah. So as you were reading, it made me think of this conversation where he's having, where Jake and, and um, Brett are talking. Um, it's on page 34. Um, and he's, uh, he says, don't you love, he says, don't you love me? And she says, love you. I simply turn all to jelly when you touch me. Isn't there anything we can do about it? She was sitting up now. My arm was around her and she was leaning back against me and we were quite calm She was looking into my eyes with that way she had of looking that made you wonder whether she really saw out of her own eyes. They would look on and on after everyone else's eyes in the world would have stopped looking. She looked as though there were nothing on earth she would not look at like that. And really, she was afraid of so many things. And there's not a damn thing we could do, I said. I don't know, she said. I don't want to go through that hell again. We'd better keep away from each other. But darling, I have to see you. Isn't that all you know? Isn't all that? It isn't all that you know. No, but it always gets to be. That's my fault. Don't we pay for all the things we do, though? And so, like, well, there's these questions like that. The conversation goes on, but this question, don't we pay for all the things we do, though? You get these questions that are like these existential questions that are wrapped up in these conversations that are so naturalistic, but are these giant questions that people are asking about the world that they live in. And those questions are juxtaposed with a three-word sentence like, that's my fault. 
and like questions like that keep coming up over and over again in the book in a way that seems like his characters are wrestling with exactly what you were just describing there. And Hemingway formally can capture that through that juxtaposition and through these questions being asked in this naturalistic way that people just ask in conversations. And so their lives, their very lives, the essence of their experiences are wrapped up in these big picture questions that are like torturing them, that are, that are carrying them along the way. Heidi, go ahead. Oh, I yeah. thought you were unmuting yourself to say something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that the juxtaposition is probably Hemingway's greatest uh, strength to get down to the subtext that we've been talking about in terms of formal the formal elements of his writing. I completely agree with that. Um, and I I these characters are they have this sadness to them. And if Hemingway is naming an emotion, it's almost always sad or happy. It's this almost this very like childlike approach to feelings. And there's this weight of feeling that they always have, but they don't seem connected to the the nuance of that. And they don't seem to connect their feelings. Yes. The big feelings that they have with the events of their lives in the same way that um like Dostoevsky does, which we were talking about the difference between them. Like Dostoevsky's characters are like, I want to talk about all of the minuscule nuances between all of the multiple threads of feeling, but with Hemingway's, and and here's why I feel that way. Then you looked at me this way. And then because of uh, whatever, there's just this like self-analysis. And this is why I killed someone with an ax. Exactly. Yes. Um, More on the Patreon episodes. Um, But with... We are, again, dwelling in that space in between uh, these characters and their own self-knowledge. And we're picking up on these threads of nuance as we read. Or we're just feeling the big feelings along with them. And Hemingway makes both of those things possible uh, as we read. Uh, We can either read it in a straightforward manner and just be like, wow, I feel really sad. Or we can kind of trace yeah. some of those threads to those deeper levels uh, and, and figure out these nuances that these characters don't seem to be able to figure out for themselves. Either they don't have the language, they don't feel safe, or there's not enough within the context of their kind of their meaningless, empty, drifting along lives for them to, to, to have a robust conversation with themselves and each other about yeah. uh, their, inner, their inner world. Yeah. I, Heidi, I love that, that like early in what you said, the characters seem to have one of two responses, sad or happy. And yeah, sad, happy, good, bad. Yeah. Pleasure, pain. It's like the only things they really respond to. And as you observed, it's not because this is not Hemingway. It's not that he is unsophisticated with regards to like you know, the emotion right. of human beings, but there's something I'm just going to try to echo what you're saying in a different way, Heidi. It seems like there's something stunted about these characters. Well, the the phrase arrested development is used. Uh, They accuse Cone. Someone accuses Cone of, uh, I think it's Francis. Francis. I think it is. Does she accuse? Somebody accuses somebody of having arrested development. Yeah. Was, and then they laugh at him. I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who dislikes Hemingway. And he's like a very well-read, <clears throat> like close reading type of person. 
he, I said, why, why do you not like him? And he's, why do you not like him anyway? And he said, there's always some kind of meaningful action you can take in your life. Mm. And I feel like these characters never do that. And, and I was, it was, I was like, okay, well, that's valid. That's, that's valid. But I kind of think that's one of the whole points. So I think as readers are coming, I think that's the whole point, it personally. Is, it is. As reader, and, and you can not like that. So that's completely fine. But considering the place, as Tim's pointed out, in history and where we're at um, when this novel was published, that exact question is at the heart of, of this novel and all of his writing. But this particular, particular novel is like, that's, that's the core. Is there some kind of meaningful action that these characters can take? And if there is, do they know about it? And yeah, that's where the thing. would they get the context to know what to do? Most books are about people who know what action they want to take. And that is the point of the book. Duty and desire. Because they have a desire. Yep. Yeah, they have a desire or a duty. They, ha- they, either, they either know what they want or they have to do something. Almost all books and stories throughout history are about that scenario. This book is a scenario where people don't know what the action is that they can take. Right. And they don't know, they're not even sure, they don't know what their duty is and they're not even sure what they actually desire. And so this is a book about that scenario and that's why it's disorienting and that's why it's different, but it doesn't make it... Go ahead, Tim. It, it strikes me, David, as really similar to The Spy Who Came In From The Cold with one hmm. stark difference our main character, what's his name, David? Um, Lemus. Lemus. I see. I read Lemus as Jake. I mean, I, I just see so many similarities. Hmm. The difference being, Lemus still has a job to do, and that job, though, is sort of um, holding yeah. up a an agency that he has now deemed rightfully as corrupt as not being significantly different than the enemy so he i think hmm. he feels the way that jake feels but he still has this kind of plan that he has to execute and so there's this juxtaposition in lemus between his actions and his inner self now in this hmm. book you take away the actions it's like the inner selves without like that project, the kind of spies project that he's yeah. through with. Well, what are we going to do? You know, let's go to Spain and drink. Let's go down on, let's go down to the city and let's, you know, like bullfights girls go by. Let's go to the bullfights. And there's an, you know, I think the, the what's the line about the bullfights that you read, Heidi? Um, there's a, there's a degree to which, the bullfights themselves are a project, right? Yeah. Like the people who are in the bullfights, there is a purpose, there is a goal, there's an end, there's something you're trying to accomplish or, you know, it's like playing a sport. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, you know, he talks a lot about tennis mm-hmm. and, and, and like, I think that that, I think that's actually kind and of telling. There's a, uh-huh. Boxing and there's an, there is an end for the action that you're taking and thus the action makes sense. Yeah. Like the, because you know what you're going for, you know, where to start and, and the whole, the whole thing, the whole activity itself has a sort of like logic to it. Yes. It yes. Right. Forward. And those, those old virtues that we could use, we used to be able to kind of like embrace and exercise culturally broadly, mm. like courage, integrity, yeah. fortitude, yeah. 
now these things are sort of hermetically locked within contexts of gamesmanship, like bullfighting and tennis and boxing. Yeah. But trying to extrapolate the, that's not the wrong word, trying to um, live those in a post-World War I culture is, extre- it's bewildering. Yes. It's bewildering. Why would one do this? And I think, like, talk to the person that you were talking to. They, they, or maybe a variation on the person that you were talking to. Sometimes I read criticisms of the lost generation as purveyors of a kind of nihilism. Like, they're the ones who are. Right, like they've kind of conjured up this nihilism, and they're going to foist it on all of us. I think that's absolutely wrong. I mean, I'm sure there are some exceptions that you know. Yeah, they're responding to an experience of living in a world that is fundamentally nihilistic. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think an inability to take that seriously that they're responding to a world um, is part of the. I think it's part of the reason, again, coming from my, the background that I was raised in, a kind of conservative literary approach, a conservative literary cultural approach that castigated the lost generations as purveyors of nihilism, I think is um, to miss what happened in the 20th century. It's just to miss what happened. Yeah. 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 Right. Can Before we go, I want to go back to the scene that I want to connect what you're saying there to the scene that Heidi brought up earlier. So on page 18, we read this bit. It says, he says, uh, Robert says, I can't stand to think my life is going so fast that I'm not really living it. That's the line that I read. And then Tim, you responded as Jake, nobody ever lives their life all the way up except bullfighters. Mm-hmm. And so we get the foreshadowing for later in the book, but we get this key theme here, right? He's saying, Robert's saying, I've got to find a way to really live my life before I get old and I look back and I regret all the choices that I made and all the things I didn't do. And then Jake says, yeah, man, but nobody's ever really going to do that except the bullfighters. Nobody, you're, no matter what you do, unless you're a bullfighter, you're going to look back at your life that way. Why does he choose bullfighters? We're going to talk about this later. And, well, full stop, question mark. <laughs> okay, so... I think that this is, that sentence is just, just so beautiful. They just, I really want to win the waxing eloquently contest. So, um, yeah, it's going to be the epigram to my novel. <laughs> Nobody ever lives their life all the way up except the bullfighters. No, because bullfighting, which I think this goes into the opener with Robert Cohn being a boxer that everybody forgot about and he hates boxing and he only yeah. did it so that he could prove himself and then nobody remembers him. He did something he profoundly hated all the way through school to, so that he could prove himself and then he was forgotten you know, like for it. going to war. Yes, like that's, that's the novel in a nutshell. Right, that opener, those two paragraphs about Robert Cohn's boxing career. And and then you have this statement about bullfighting. And you're exactly right. I think that the 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 various games and gamesmanship are the last shreds of honor in a completely uh I don't want to say meaning, I don't want to say completely meaningless, meaning I do not mean that that sports and games don't have value, but there's not it's not, there's nothing at stake in the same way that cultural institutions were. 
right? So to take all of a culture's honor, all of a generation's sense of honor and duty and, and decorum, and to put it into boxing and gamesmanship, and that that's the place where you can find some kind of meaningful structure, something at stake, some code of honor, whereas love and war and work and, and, and building a life doesn't have that anymore. There's a great sadness in that divide, right? Like you can do, you can say all's fair in love and war, and, uh, and, but my code of honor is in the boxing ring. That's sad. Hmm. That's there's a well, lot of sadness in it. Hemingway explores that. Secondly, the, hold on, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna say Cohn recognizes that. Yes. Because he's like, that's not normal. I want to I want to be able abnormal. to live. I want to live a full life that's a normal life. But the bullfighting like, thing South America. Exactly. The bullfighting thing is significant because bullfighting is an inherent as we see later in the novel, is an inherently destructive endeavor. Nobody wins yeah. in bullfighting. Nobody wins. Somebody is wounded. Somebody is hurt, whether it's the bull who doesn't know what the heck is going on or the man who's a man, a person, right? And it's, it's like this modern day gladiatorial ring and it's, it's inherently destructive. And yet that's the way to live your life to the fullest. That's the only way to live your life to the fullest. Do you, do you think Jake really believes that though? Because there's this sense in no. which people say things in this sort of offhand way and then yeah. it leads them to make decisions and they never really, I mean, this is true of human beings, right? Like we say things and the next thing you know, you're living your life according to the thing that you said and you kind of meant it in an offhand, like rhetorical, experimental sort of way. Yes, I do. I don't think he meant it at all because nobody can mean that because that's inherently nihilistic. But these characters say these things, but they have these deep human longings, right? And and Hemingway lets that be. Like he presents- So you think- I think that they want to, I think that they've intentionally chosen to dwell in this level of desire and sensuality and superficiality in an attempt to uh, create a sense of meaning, but it's been too long. Like they're in their mid thirties. These are not 24 year olds on spring break. Like they are- that's old for spring break, but yeah. <laughs> like they, these are real adults who have been yeah. living like this for yeah, a yeah. long time, and they already are connected with the uh, with the sense of being adrift in a meaningless world, and they don't know what to do about that, and they don't have anything to cling on to. And I'm thinking of specific moments in the novel that we haven't gotten to yet, and I'm not going to give yeah. any spoilers. But there is this there is a sense in which Hemingway throughout the novel explores the potential, the, the old ways of meaning that don't mean anything to these characters anymore. And that's the sadness of the novel in a lot of ways. Do you think that when he throws out this idea of bullfighting, it's an expression of longing for like, like the reason that bullfighting comes to mind is because it's an expression of like courage and how alive you feel on the brink of death. And, and, and like it's, um, on the what? Like on the, uh, when you're risking your life, like on the oh, brink right. of yeah. death. Yeah, yeah. What do you um, think, Tim? Well, I was thinking about so what pensive. I was reasoning to myself about whether or not Jake does believe what he says about bullfighters, that they're the ones that are living, really living life. I think he means it. I think he actually believes it. Now, your critique could be, then why isn't he a bullfighter? Um, 
and I think that just the first answer is well, for practical reasons, he's an American who you know acquainted himself with bullfighting late, and you know bullfightings are trained since they were boys. Um, so I don't I don't know that that's a uh, real critique. I think that he the foreignness is appealing, probably actually. Yeah, probably so. But I think he might actually believe it that they really are living like what a full and real life is like. It might be just an interesting question to kind of keep tabs along, to keep tabs on as we read forward in the book about whether or not we really think that he believes this. It's a good the, question. Uh, yep. The thing for me is that like he speaks in such extremes all the time. Mm-hmm. So the sentence itself is really interesting. Nobody ever lives their life all the way except bullfighters. And so, you know, it seems to be representative of something he believes, but maybe a little bit too extreme. Maybe because like, like is it inflamed in some way? Yeah, like <laughs> nobody, like literally nobody. <laughs> Does he really believe that ex- the, ex- the, ex- the 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 extreme the extremism? with which he expresses it. I think you're, I think you're both right in a way. Like mm-hmm. rhetorically, I don't know if he really believes the way, what he says, but I think at the heart of what he's saying, there, there's belief Like he believes in the principle that he's expressing. What's that documentary about that, that guy who climbs Mount, who does like free climbing. Is that, have you guys seen that? Oh, um, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of listeners that are just shouting at the, uh, I know. Bethany watched, yes. Bethany watched it. Um, and he has free the girlfriend, solo. Free, free solo. solo. He's got yeah. the girlfriends and he just like risks his life climbing. He doesn't have his, there's a part of his brain missing. <laughs> he has, yes, he has no gear and he just literally, climbs but. up these like sheer cliffs and risks his life. I mean, you I could also maybe- Yosemite, right? Yes, you can. It's, it's El Capitan, which I've- Half Dome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or El Capitan, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. On the other whatever, side, whatever like I've done the hike, but, and that is a- crazy thing to do. And so you could almost make it interchangeable, right? The only people who truly live the real human life are the free solo climbers, right? It's it's the idea of yeah. the constant gamble, the risk, the sense that like feel the feeling of being completely alive in that moment on the brink of death is what gives meaning to yeah. life. The willingness to say that this doesn't matter as much as the experience. Like everything else does, nothing else matters as much as the Roll experience. The yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I am going to dissent a little bit because I think there's something about bullfighting for Jake that is not present in um, free climbing a Capitan. And I think, again, this is something like we can talk about when we get into Spain, which is not going to happen for another couple of sections. But I think that there's something about the life world and the pageantry and the symbolism associated with the bullfight that is more than huh. just a single actor in the ring. I, I, I think it's... Hmm. Um, I think it's more than boxing. I think it's more than climbing. I think that it's more than kind of like solo kayaking i think it's a relic is bullfighting of an hmm. old way of being hmm. and it is a communal event full of pageantry full of um import like, like having hmm. to some bullfights it is uh I'm trying to 
it's more regimented than an Orthodox wedding. There is so <laughs> going on beforehand. There's so much going on during huh. the fight. Everything has to happen in order. If something does not happen in, in its order, the bullfight is a complete failure. Um, so I, I, I'm going to submit. I'm convinced. Wilson. I'm totally convinced. And I, this is why I like sometimes that. you need specialized knowledge in order to interpret books. <laughs> sometimes. Because that's the thing that they're, that in Hemingway, he's so brilliant, right? Like that's the thing they're all missing. Yes. Yeah. Is the, is the, mm. is the symbolism, the sacramental nature of reality, the idea yeah. that like there's a pageantry, there's an order, there's a decorum to life that you must follow. Oh, so to good. combine the risk with that kind of artificial sacramentality or pageantry, hierarchy, and, liturgy, like that's yeah. the thing that's gone and that's where they can find it, but it still has that sense of a lot of, of life and risk. And that's yeah. what they're all looking for. Yeah, and, and 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 I think that Cohn and and Barnes are after similar things, but yeah. they're like Cohn says, "I want that to be normal, like I want the I want life. I want that yeah. to still be the world that we live in." Right. So they're both they're both longing for that yes. liturgy of whatever word we want to use, oh, and so he's good. saying, "I'm looking for that in everyday life. I want to go to South America where they're still living their everyday life the way they have for centuries because modern progress and the effects of the war are, have not impacted them the way that they have in Paris. The world in Paris is not the world in Paris that it was in 1880. Now that it's 1920, and for Barnes, he's looking for this this." The, the grand pageantry, you know, like this medieval pageantry that the like knights, you know, he wants jousting matches and things like that. Go ahead, Tim. I think one thing that readers should anticipate is we have these characters, these dis, this displaced lost generation longing for what Robert Cohn is longing for, as you just described, David. Um, what happens when these two worlds, the worlds of the lost generation and kind of the old world of Spain, what happens when they come in contact mm-hmm. with each other? That's mm-hmm. going to be a central question of the book also. Well, given that it's we're at an hour and 50 minutes on our clock, um, it, that seems like a good time to wrap up. So l- waiting. So you so then you're saying, look for the collision of these two, these two perspectives, these two worlds. While, but yeah. what they're going to come in contact later in the book and what happens when they do. Heidi, what are you going to, what do you say people should look for? What are you excited to be reading about again? Um, I think that the impact on Jake from his wound, from his impotence is played out in all of the characters. Um, in a different so if we imagine that the primal existential physical wound that Jake has is symbolic of the wound that every one of these characters has somehow in their life look for that in each character it's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. good what are you going to be looking for david david um i think that brett uh lady brett ashley is a um I, a one of the more f- interesting characters in 20th century literature. Gosh, yes. Um, look for why she's compelling and the stuff that doesn't seem like it's, you know, there's more to her than what's on the surface. Yes. And this is one of Hemingway's genius. 
I think Hemingway is a great writer of female characters in a way that is different than what we normally think of when we say that writers are great female, write, write, male writers are great writers of women. Mm. Like we talk about Wendell Berry writing Hannah Coulter or the way he writes Maddie Chatham in Jaber Crow. And there's a, and the way he, and, pe- and women especially say, I don't know how he does it, right? Hemingway is a great writer of female characters in a different way. Yeah. And so I would say, look for how he manages to make her this incredibly compelling character um, in, in a way that is his own sort of distinct mode of doing that. That's good. Um, don't forget, you can join the conversation over on Facebook. You can type in Close Reads over on the search bar. If you haven't joined that, we'd love to have you over there. You can follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And we have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. I'm thinking it's probably time for a Q&A newsletter sometime soon. So we'll have to get some people to send in some questions and we'll try to give you some more answers on random things that we're, that we're up to and that we're thinking about. Those are always fun because the questions are pure nonsense. And thus the answers are pure nonsense. <laughs> um, and then don't forget, of course, about the Patreon episodes. We are wrapping up our series on common punishment. Next week, we'll be uh, going up with our um, epilogue conversation and then the Q&A. And then after that, you've spoken. It looks like it's going to be Lord of the Rings. So we're going to uh, diving into, be diving into the Lord of the Rings. We're going to bring on some, you know, a bunch of different guest people who are enthusiasts. Uh, sometimes you'll have the three of us. Sometimes you won't. But we're going to have a lot of fun with that and try to offer a bunch of different variety um, on that show. So be ready for that in a month's time or so as we as we get ready for that. If you want to join Patreon to get access to those, head over to patreon.com slash close reads and make sure that you sign up for that. And uh, I guess that's it. So with that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.